And we'll now shift gears and uh, move to the intersection between COVID and HIV uh, with a presentation by uh, my uh, co-panel moderator and leader, uh, Monica Gandhi, who is a professor of medicine at um, the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, She's been at UCSF uh, since arriving uh, after graduating from Harvard Medical School in 1996 and now is... um, uh, leading uh, the um, effort with uh, women's studies. And as you heard, you'll be seeing um, the uh, IAS uh, meeting next week with Monica having played a main role in uh, pulling that one together. So with no uh, further ado, I'm looking forward to hearing um, what uh, Dr. Gandhi has to say about uh, the intersection between HIV uh, and COVID-19. My name is Monica Gandhi, and I'm going to be speaking about what's known about the intersection of COVID-19 and HIV infection. I have no relevant financial affiliations to disclose. And the learning objectives of this presentation is after attending this presentation, learners will be able to describe what is known about COVID-19 in terms of the current status of the pandemic, impact of HIV and COVID-19 susceptibility and outcomes, and impact on the pandemic on HIV outcomes, including treatment, PrEP, and access to care. So the outline of the talk is we're going to talk about how did COVID-19 get here and where are we now? Why would uh, HIV make COVID-19 outcomes possibly worse? Why would theoretically HIV make COVID-19 outcomes better? And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the little data that we have about studies from Italy, New York, Spain, and Cape Town on the HIV impact on COVID-19. Then I'll turn to the impact of COVID-19 on HIV outcomes, including treatment, PrEP, and access to care. So to take a step back, how did we get here with COVID-19? Well, remember that coronaviruses are called that because they have spiky projections on their surface that looks like a crown. So corona means crown in Latin. And usually coronaviruses cause the common cold, sneezing, runny nose, mild sore throat, mild fever. But there occasionally been times in history and in pandemics where the coronavirus has become very severe and can cause acute respiratory distress syndrome, pneumonia, and death. We've had two such um, pandemics in uh, the last 20 years, one in 2003, 2002, and another one in 2012. So this is the first time. And to go back to 2002, 2003, that was the SARS pandemic. In 2002, there was another virus that came out of China as well called the severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS-CoV. It lasted about nine months in the world until 2003. We had 8,100 cases. It spread around 29 countries, and there were 774 deaths. There were only 29 cases in the U.S., but zero deaths, and there were more in Canada. This came from the horseshoe bat, like the coronaviruses do, and then it went through an intermediary host, which was a cat-like mammal called the palm civet, and then got into humans to cause human-to-human transmission. The second time that we saw this was with the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus in 2012, or the MERS-CoV virus. It first came out in Saudi Arabia. All cases were linked to the Middle East. It went around the world from 2012 to 2019. In 27 countries, there were 2,500 cases and 858 deaths. 
In the United States, there were only two cases in May 2014 in Indiana and Florida, both among healthcare workers from Saudi Arabia. Each intermediary host from the bat was the camel, and then it went into humans and then could go human to human. So now what about this new coronavirus that is causing such a pandemic for the third time? This also, this coronavirus can cause fever, cough, ARDS, pneumonia, and it was first reported in Wuhan, China on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2019. People possibly had been initially exposed to this virus from what are so-called live markets where animals are kept very close together. And on January 7th, the etiology of this new syndrome was uh, found to be from a new coronavirus. Uh, this has been spreading around the world since then. And on January 30th, the WHO called it a global health emergency. And Martin March 11th, the World Health Organization called this a pandemic. And where are we currently in the world with number of um, SARS-CoV-2 cases and deaths? Well, as of today, we're over 10 million infections of COVID-19 around the world and uh, over 500,000 deaths. In the United States, the pandemic, um, uh, actually, the United States became the epicenter of the pandemic in on March 26, 2020, and we've remained the epicenter of the pandemic since. So far in the United States, we have over 2.6 million infections and uh, close to 129,000 deaths um, as of today. And you can see the hotspots in the United States uh, that are emerging now, which are mainly in Florida, Texas, Arizona, and hotspots in California as well. So what about the other great viral pandemic of our day, which is HIV? Well, this is the latest data that we have. Um, remember that uh, data from worldwide figures for HIV are updated in advance of the major international AIDS conference every two years. So we'll get an update um, in about a week at AIDS 2020 for UN AIDS data. But as of the last data that we have, as of the end of 2018, UN AIDS data um, projects that we have 37.9 million people living with HIV around the world. And you can see the, um, uh, the hotspots there in terms of Eastern and Southern Africa and areas of Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And then you can see what the HIV epidemic looks like as of the latest CDC data that we have in the United States. Uh, this is data from um, uh, adults over 13 years in 2018, and you can see that we're at 1.17 million infections in the United States. And you can see, again, the areas of the highest uh, prevalence of infection, which are in the south, southeast, in the northeast, uh, in Texas, and in California. So then let's think about how will and are COVID-19 and HIV interacting? Well, the first question that we want to pose is, does HIV increase the susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 or severe COVID-19 disease? And the question is, are there some theoretical reasons to think that people living with HIV could have worse outcomes with COVID-19 than those without HIV? And the answer to that is theoretically yes. People living with HIV, especially those with low CD4 counts and high viral loads are immunosuppressed. That's a risk factor for ARDS and other viral infections. However, immunosuppression from HIV, at least per se, has not come out as a clear risk factor for SARS-CoV-2. People living with HIV have an increased frequency of some of the known risk factors associated with severe COVID-19, like hypertension, diabetes, 
cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disease, and older age. For example, nearly half of the people living with HIV in the U.S. are over 50 years old. People living with HIV have a higher rate of cardiovascular disease and pulmonary disease than the general population, especially COPD. And there are higher rates of poverty and marginal housing among our safety net populations of HIV, uh, people living with HIV in urban centers, which can expose to more transmission. Are there, on the other hand, reasons to think that people living with HIV could have better outcomes with COVID-19? Theoretically, yes. Tenofovir, for example, in its triphosphorylated format, may inhibit replication of the SARS-CoV-2 virus polymerase. So specifically, the polymerase of SARS-CoV-2, which is an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, may be inhibited by a phosphorylated form of tenofovir. And in fact, tenofovir, a nucleotide analog, looks like remdesivir, which is a nucleoside analog, which we know has activity against SARS-CoV-2. Lopinavir, ritonavir, adazanavir, ritonavir, both protease inhibitors may have effects, but this hasn't come out in studies so far that these protease inhibitors have an effect on severe COVID-19 outcomes. But it's true that maybe tenofovir or HIV itself could suppress the immune effects and the inflammation that accompanies severe COVID-19 disease and could actually improve outcomes in that case. And in fact, because of all of these reasons, there is this ongoing study in Spain that started on April 1st of healthcare workers randomized to tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, FTC, versus placebo, and looking at these healthcare workers and their susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 with the trovatolite compound. In addition, those with HIV may be social distancing more from concern. So do we have any studies on this interaction question of HIV and COVID-19? Well, there have only been small case series on the risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection or severe COVID-19 disease among people with HIV to date. For example, there's a case series of 47 people living with HIV in Italy, and in that case, COVID-19 hospitalizations was reported to occur at ages in people living with HIV an average of 10 years younger than people without HIV, although the majority of those people living with HIV had at least one comorbidity that could predispose to severe COVID-19. Another small study recently published in Shades of people living with HIV in NYU when compared to 42 match controls without HIV showed greater ICU admission rates and need for intubation among those living with HIV in this small study. Other small series are presented here. There was a case report of a patient with HIV, Hep C, and COVID-19, which showed that the RT-PCR in that patient was repeatedly negative and the IgM peak was prolonged. It took 48, 42 days, and IgG titers were blunted compared to historically those without HIV, but that was a single person published in CID. There was a case series of nine patients in the Bronx of COVID-19 among those living with HIV, and they had severe disease, but they all also had comorbidities. And then a study out of Mount Sinai looked at people admitted with uh, COVID-19 who had HIV, and they were matched to those without HIV by age, race, ethnicity, sex, and week of COVID-19 hospitalization and admission. And in that relatively larger series compared to the others, there was no differences in disease severity on admission or adverse outcomes like mechanical ventilation or death among those who had HIV. 
And then finally, this is available only in a press release, um, not yet in uh, peer-reviewed or in publication, so I refer you to the um, press on this. But this is West data from the Western Cape in South Africa out of 12,987 patients who had COVID-19 in Western Cape Town. After adjusting for other risk factors, it looked like HIV increased mortality with COVID-19 by a factor of 2.75. And active TB also increased uh, severe COVID-19 outcomes. However, in the interpretation the authors gave of this, um, other comorbidities that are typically associated with more severe COVID-19 outcomes far outweighed HIV in terms of contributing to COVID-related deaths. And those included older age, comorbidities like high blood pressure and diabetes, cardiovascular disease and pulmonary disease. So the conclusion was there was a relatively modest effect from HIV um, in this setting of a generalized HIV ep- uh, uh, epidemic in terms of outcomes with COVID-19. So next, the question is, well, what about the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on HIV? And really, the concern here is that there is going to be a major effect of the COVID-19 pandemic and the requisite uh, social distancing and public health measures that accompany the pandemic on those living with other chronic diseases, including people living with HIV. And so the impact of COVID-19 is expected to derail HIV treatment, to derail PrEP access and adherence, to increase loneliness, substance use, and all of the other effects that um, are going to harm uh, those living with HIV. For example, here was a model put out by UNAIDS at the end of May, which is, uh, they, they definitely hasten to say this is a, uh, not a prophecy, but a model. But the cost of inaction, if we don't counteract all the interruption of HIV treatment services due to COVID-19 that are occurring in Sub-Saharan Africa, the model predicts that there'll be an excess of 500,000 extra deaths in Sub-Saharan Africa due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And in fact, as you can see on the right, we um, have not been this high uh, in terms of that gray circle in terms of number of deaths, which will approach a million um, since 2008. So the concern is that we'll have 500,000 extra deaths um, if we don't counteract the impact of all these disruptions on HIV treatment. And in fact, this led UNAIDS to put out just a couple of days ago on June 24th, a document and a press release to ask and to make a plea that essentially the impact of the COVID-19 response will affect the supply chain and already has the availability and the cost of generic antiretroviral medications for HIV in low and middle income countries. And the concern is that if we don't immediately try to intervene on this, we are going to have severe impacts on age-related mortality. What this press release says is that lockdowns have impacted both the transport of goods across the value chain of production and the distribution of HIV medicines, that barriers to the supply chain is going to lead to increases in antiretroviral costs, and really we require a massive coordinated action by governments across the world to ease the supply chain and to ensure that we continue to have distribution of medications of life-saving antiretroviral treatment to those living in low- and middle-income countries to counteract this uh, devastating effect. 
There have been many articles and concerns raised about not just the impact of COVID-19 on HIV outcomes, but on tuberculosis responses for malaria control for all of this progress that we've made in terms of other infectious diseases. And importantly, there is a great concern that these syndemics colliding, that HIV colliding with COVID-19 is going to lead to problems um, that we have always seen um, increased effects of and disproportionately impacting those living with HIV. And what I mean by that is um, concerns about mental health and increased substance use. And because of the economic downturn, increased poverty in those living with HIV, loneliness in the setting of pandemic and, the, and social distancing, uh, mistrust of the medical healthcare system um, being exacerbated by COVID-19. We are very concerned about increases in food insecurity and have already seen it in housing insecurity, those affecting conditions, those affecting people living with HIV more. Uh, racism and homophobia and all this from the COVID-19 public health response are all likely to affect people living with HIV disproportionately. The other concern that's been raised, of course, is effects on HIV testing, HIV susceptibility, and PrEP access. This is a study out of Kenya um, in April that showed already uh, very soon after the shutdowns occurred in sub-Saharan Africa, that HIV testing in two communities in Western Kenya, um, one community represented by the bars in yellow and one community represented by the bars in blue, already um, HIV testing had plummeted by half um, over the space of a month with the shutdown um, of services in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa because of the lockdowns. And uh, HIV testing uh, plummeting is also accompanied by concerns of PrEP access. We will see some data um, from AIDS 2020 coming up um, in the next week about the massive impacts that COVID-19 is having on PrEP uptake and access in both high-income and low-and-middle-income countries. And then the final concern is on HIV risk. There will be another study that will be coming out in AIDS 2020 about the severe impact and the possible uh, likelihood of increased susceptibility to HIV in the setting of the mass social disruptions occurring from COVID-19. And so I refer you both to the AIDS 2020 program uh, next week, um, which will be virtual, so available to all. And then also want to point out that we're having the first abstract-driven uh, COVID-19 conference uh, at the same time um, of the AIDS 2020 meeting from the International AIDS Society. That particular meeting will be held on July 10th and 11th, um, and we will have Dr. Uh, Burks and Dr. Uh, Fauci from... Um, the White House Task Force speaking. We will have um, Mrs. Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland. We'll have Dr. Tedros, the executive director of the WHO. And all of this um, uh, will conclude discussions of the impact of COVID-19 on HIV throughout the meeting. So in conclusion, COVID-19 is spreading around the world now in areas of higher HIV prevalence than when it initially arose um, in Asia. Uh, we are seeing higher prevalence, of course, in, uh, saw that already in Europe, which is doing much better. U.S. remains the epicenter of the epidemic, and we're seeing increasing rates of infection and cases in sub-Saharan Africa, places of generalized HIV epidemics. There is a question that people with HIV may have higher rates of comorbidities um, and, that, and because of that have higher rates of more severe COVID-19 disease. Uh, 
We haven't seen that come out in a major way in the small studies we have, however. And also there's a theoretical question about tenofovir being protective against susceptibility or severe disease with COVID-19. And again, we're looking for that data to be upcoming. Studies to date from Europe and the U.S. at least have not shown more more severe outcomes or susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 with HIV. And the first data that we have out of South Africa shows increased rate of mortality from COVID-19 among those living with HIV, but the increase in rate was marginal and quite low compared to other comorbidities that predispose to severe COVID-19. The main effect of COVID-19 on HIV will seem to be in terms of treatment access, treatment outcomes, HIV testing rates, susceptibility to HIV, and PrEP access and outcomes. And so we're very concerned about that, as well as concerns regarding mental health effects of the shutdown, substance use, food insecurity, and housing security among people living with HIV. So in conclusion, these two Pandemics are indeed colliding, and uh, we as HIV researchers and physicians um, are often turning and working towards COVID-19 outcomes as well. And now I will take any questions. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, Dr. Gandhi. We already have a few coming in. One of them um, uh, has to do with this issue you've touched on a bit uh, related to uh, supply chain concerns with China uh, and um I guess, as we say, we always have India, but on the other hand, India is about to um, go into a much deeper COVID uh, uh, period of time than, than we've seen from what I can tell from a distance. So um, that is exactly what UNAIDS um, is concerned about as well with that press release on June 24th. And in fact, it's not just theoretical there has already been a decrease in supply chains in low and middle income countries to antiretroviral access. This is of deep, deep concern to the AIDS community because um, with 36.9 million people living with HIV, let's see what the number is in a week, um, and only 23 million of those receiving ART access, uh, we weren't already at 100% access. And now uh, we could go down even further and, and definitively we have. So this is what um, the cry for is, I think, needs to be in our community and all of us on the phone is to work to mitigate those concerns. And part of that is uh, government commitment more than ever before to ensure that we have uh, of a supply chain going even in the midst of COVID because it's going to make things worse and we can't take we don't want to take these many steps backward with AIDS, but th- there's a big concern that we will. There's another question here about uh, given HIV is uh, a condition with pro-inflammatory cytokines floating around. Is there a reason to think that the cytokine storm would be worse or perhaps better? Uh, yeah, this is, yeah. this is a great question because there's a um, there was an article just put out in, J- in Journal of Infectious Diseases today that I referenced in the um, slides, but it hadn't been published yet, but the, the publication just came out today that looked at group of those living with HIV, 93 people um, at Mount Sinai, and compared their pro-inflammatory, compared their inflammation markers to those without HIV. And it did look like um, the, the issue was that HIV can either make you less inclined to have inflammation or more, because HIV itself also is an immunosuppressive effect. And so was it less or more? In the case of this JID article, at least, it looked like 
um, HIV patients were able to mount the entire cytochrome storm that those living without HIV. And that's not surprising because in general, they are ART on ART and have relatively high CD4 counts and suppress. So it does look like um, people with HIV will be able to mount the same response, but whether they're going to have more of a response, we haven't seen that evidence yet, unless other people know. Yeah, we've seen a lot of uh, manuscripts um, run through reviews and things that yes. try to look at this. And what's difficult at the end of the day is to really have appropriately matched patients uh, because there's so many comorbid conditions that drive COVID as well. And some of them overlap with some of the things accumulate in uh, particularly older HIV infected folks. And um, it's very hard at the end of the day when you start having 27 cytokines compared in that background uh, to know what's real and what's um, a uh, mathematical model of reality. So um, I agree. I think we need prospective studies instead of, um, you know, looking back and doing retrospective case cohort. I, I completely agree. But another question is whether or not um, it, it, um, it bounces off the same issue about whether older people with HIV infection and the comorbidities uh, would be expected to have the same kinds of problems that people without HIV or perhaps more uh, when COVID comes along? Yes, I mean, I think the biggest, um, so other comorbidities, of course, that predispose to worse severe COVID outcomes, and these were just a last week, are in general diabetes and older age and cardiovascular disease and cardiopulmonary disease and hypertension and obesity. Um, and all of that can be in those living with HIV, but in addition, cancer outcomes or cancer um, seems to be an emerging risk factor for having more severe COVID-19 outcomes. And so there's no reason to think that people with HIV with cancer won't have more severe outcomes. On the other hand, what we're more worried about is what I talked about in the second half is cancer outcomes are also going to become more poor in the setting of COVID-19 unless we open up cancer trials and allow people on to investigational trials. And so there's a big concern about this happened with the 1918 influenza pandemic that other medical problems became worse. People had worse heart disease, stroke, everything else you can think of, just like we're already starting to see now because of COVID-19's sort of impact on healthcare systems. So I am, I am, there's no reason to think that people with cancer aren't going to have worse outcomes with COVID-19, even if they have HIV. One of the questioners remembers the days when we used to use LDH as a uh, decision point for using corticosteroids uh, in people with PCP or PJP. We called it PCP in those days. <laughs> uh, would that be something that, uh, as we think about uh, when to uh, use um, uh, dexamethasone in COVID, that might also be a trigger with or without HIV infection? I think that's a very interesting idea, but I am not as interested in the biomarkers of when to trigger dexamethasone, and you're going to talk so and I'm just excited about dexamethasone period in terms of its decrease on mortality and its biological plausibility for why it would uh, decrease mortality with uh, with COVID-19. So I don't think it's necessary to do LDH or to think about stratifying. Um, it's, you know, a very short course of a small amount and um, has good effects. So I would just go ahead and use it in, in those living with HIV as well. Yeah, uh, not making a distinction between the two. Yep. Yes. Okay. All right. I guess one thing to consider, too, about this over the longer term is we do know that there are um, um, there's increasing 
evidence that people who undergo COVID infection, even mild disease, may have persistent lung disease um, uh, that may last for a long period of time. And certainly those could be confounding uh, HIV pathogenesis later in life as well. So uh, this is not a disease to trivialize, um, uh, even though younger people seem to do pretty well with it at this point. Yes, I totally agree. Um, and yeah, this is a disturbing country. I, could I mention that tenofovir thing? Or Please do. Yep. <laughs> this now. Um, I, the only reason I wanted to just say it is it, it will come up, you know, when I, when we summarize the, the studies of the overlap between HIV and COVID, there just hasn't been that many. We can all kind of name them. There have been maybe six or seven. Um, but one just came out today. So I just want to mention it just because it's important to, to re, to remember that these are coming out pretty fast and furious. This one was published in the annals today, uh, looking at in Spain among people who are living with HIV. Um, uh, um, and have COVID-19. Essentially 77,000 patients across Spain who had COVID-19, and of those 77,236 were had HIV. And then of those 236, they looked at different outcomes um, of those patients living with HIV and COVID on different, if they happened to be on different regimens. Again, they weren't put on regimens. This was just what they were on. And it did look like um, TDF, but not TAF, seemed to have um, uh, an association with with better outcomes in terms of I, uh, ICU admissions, ventilation, and death than um, patients with HIV on other antiretrovirals. You uh, uh, pointed out, as we were discussing this in the chat, that there's absolute channeling bias and like who got into that study and also, like, it wasn't a prospective study. It wasn't randomized. It wasn't putting people on tenofovir or not and saying how they did. But it's just probably intriguing to mention that that did come out today. And that's one of our biggest looks at, um, with 236 patients overlapping in Europe, uh, our biggest look at um, a group of people with HIV COVID-19 co-infection. I guess I would say, though, counterbalancing that, there's no particular reason that TAF and TDF would behave differently. Uh, based on what we know about uh, putative, um, the the, the uh, warhead is the same uh, in terms of TAF and uh, TDF. They're both tenofovir triphosphate. And, um, the, and there's uh, some intracellular aspect. I mean, that's the weird thing is could T cell, you know, SARS-CoV-2, would it, I have no idea if T cells taking up um, tenofovir more in terms of the phosphorylated compound because you have higher rates of tenofovir diphosphate with TAF than you do with TDF, would that overwhelm the RNA flavorase? I can't even imagine, you know, I totally agree with you. Like, I'm just hand-waving, but I'm trying to imagine could there be anything about the intracellular concentrations that would make those different. I completely agree with you that it doesn't make sense. I, I, I wouldn't go out and change people from uh, uh, TAF to TDF at this point. Very fair. From covid and as someone asked a question, we have not seen, and, and they mentioned this in the article, we do need to, it'd be interesting to look at PrEP, patients on PrEP and their outcomes with um, with COVID. Good point. All right. Okay. I think we are, um, I don't see any active questions that we haven't, uh, We've uh, long-term lung disease we've already addressed with severe COVID disease and HIV and non-HIV patients. Um and uh, I think we've addressed most of the others. So why don't we take, start our break now and have a couple of extra minutes for the break and come back at 150.
Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Dr. Gandhi, for a great talk. Thank you.